Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are still your video game podcast here with you for the week of January 31st of the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here on the program, and we thank you so much for joining us, all of you out there in Radioland, Podcastland, Homeland, Adventureland, all the lands from this land to the last, oh, sorry, McDonald land, almost forgot about that. Uh, all the lands uh, joining us here once again under the tent, that is the arcade. Indeed, and uh, you say us, meaning that there's more than one person, which you're right. You're not alone in being the host of this podcast. I am always the co-host, but this week I'm Dennis, the man whose mind is boggled that the biggest wealth redistribution experiment of the modern age was successfully carried out by trolls on Reddit. <laughs> now, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you're talking about Blackberry stock. Is that I mean, ta- uh, Yes. Right? That's, maybe, maybe, that's what all the kids maybe, were talking about this week? Maybe indirectly? <laughs> <laughs> but but no? I mean, <laughs> like, you you would have had to have been living under a rock or literally not know, have not paid attention to any sort of news to not know that basically Wall Street bets the subreddit on Reddit um, basically discovered how to stick it to hedge fund people and really pumped GameStop stock to um, meteoric heights. Crazy, crazy, crazy levels. Yeah, I think the highest it ever got in the entire history of the company. Oh, yes. No, it's been setting, uh, you know, new all-time highs basically for the past month at least. Uh, I think even got so far as to, during the point of one trading day, uh, reached as much as $500 per share. Yeah, which is like, cause when, before all of this started, um, I mean, we don't need to explain what shorting is, but it's cause it's, I think it's a little bit complicated and we don't fully understand exactly how it was carried out, but the long and the short of it being, no pun intended there, of course, being uh, hedge fund people are able to borrow stocks from somewhere, sell those stocks off right away, wait a bit, and then buy them back at a way cheaper price, then give the stocks back, thus gaining X amount of dollars in the process. So like if you buy, if you borrow a stock when it's $10, sell it at $10, wait a bit, sell it, or then rebuy it back when it's $7, you've made $3. So for, for, for doing nothing. So that's, they were heavily shorting GameStop stock to the tune of what? Like 150% of, uh, there was, there was something where they had basically an inordinate amount of shorts, short stocks going out. And, you know, in the hopes that, you know, they would lose crazy value and Wall Street bets being actually a surprisingly well-researched subreddit. Decided, you know what? We're done with these crazy people trying to like heavily short these stocks and making a crap load of money in the process for basically doing nothing but, you know, putting the rumor out there that a company is doing poorly when the company's not actually doing poorly. 
So they kind of fought back and they all banded together and they bought a crazy amount of GameStop stock, thus making the share price go crazy up. It's true. And I think it's still, yeah, it's still kind of holding in like a, the, the value pattern it's in, but yeah. It plateaued over the uh, two most recent uh, trading days of activity where it's gone to at the time you are listening to this program. Uh, we, of course, do not know, uh, as this was recorded prior to the new trading week at the end of January slash start of February. Uh, but it plateaued over the uh, last uh, couple days of its two most recent trading days that we saw and were privy to in no small part because of the intervention on the part of certain trading institutions or trading apps that the community on Wall Street Bets were using to buy and sell shares of GameStop, which out of nowhere, these apps decided, hey, you know, this, there's too much of this going on. Uh, we're just going to step in here and limited trading. Now, initially, they just outright halted people from being able to uh, buy shares of GameStop, uh, I believe, on one day, and then the next day they walked it back, but it's severely limited. I think you can only buy one or two, and you cannot sell your positions. So that, of course, looks super shady, and then opened up a whole other area of uh, questioning and also people's ire as to why the hell are you doing this? We should be able to freely trade as we so wish. Yeah. And yeah, I think the, it's very interesting how hedge funds are now quaking in their boots because generally this is kind of how they've been making money for a long time. It's just now it seems that they're crying foul because they're crying collusion and all this other stuff that I don't think really holds water because all that Wall Street bets and all the people there are doing is the same thing that the hedge fund people do, except it's spread across multiple people who aren't billionaires versus, you know, a few people in a hedge fund that are billionaires. Right? Exactly. And that's what makes it wrong. The the non-billionaires cannot have money. Right. Yeah. That's, that's the general impression I'm getting from the, the pushback from the general, well, not, not general population, but the, the old, the old money people, the, the people who were, you know, not Wall Street bets, who are not maybe of the same generation as the people who are in Wall Street bets, who, you know, view the stock market market and view trading on the stock market as, well, it has to be done this certain way, not the way that you're doing it, which, you know, if that's not generational warfare, I don't really know what is. Uh, it's generational warfare. Uh, it's, it's class warfare. Um you know, there, there's a lot of different fronts that these battles can be fought on because this is going to, at least at the current moment, look like uh, it's going to be some sort of flashpoint, perhaps an inflection point where we start to see things go in different directions. Perhaps there's actual reform that comes out of it. I mean, an ideal in an idealized world, yes, there'd be reform and uh, uh, measures taken to ensure that the old money institutional investors uh, cannot still run Wall Street in the manner that they've been running Wall Street for God knows how long now, and democratize it a bit more and uh, allow even more institute or retail investors, more common people, to get into the market. Yeah, but we both know that when how how much influence those old money people are going to have in making the new rules so 
chances are that's not actually going to be the case. I mean, we, we don't know one way or the other, although, I mean, the, the old cynical versions that are you and I, uh, yeah, we're, we're not expecting much of anything at this current juncture to change. No, no, we're not. Although it has been quite interesting to see the uh, pushback that has come out of this uh, and just the wide swath uh, that uh, it has cut across of people speaking out in support of Wall Street bets and, and denouncing the actions, uh, particularly of the Robinhood trading app that uh, it seemed a large portion of the Wall Street bets community were using. Um, the ire being raised from Democrats, Republicans, you know, the, you know, the rich, the poor and whatnot. This is, uh, uh, a really galvanizing, uh, point for a lot of people across a lot of different spectrums. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's kind of funny how, you know, money is the great equalizer and the great uniter. Yes, it can. It, uh, you know, it bring people together either when you've got it and when you don't have it, uh, you know, yeah. regardless. Exactly. But uh, it, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this. And um, yeah. Now, it's, it's uh, uh, if you haven't already gone on, and it, probably by this point you have out of just a general curiosity, but if you're still one of the people who hasn't gone on to read through and check out just exactly what this Wall Street Bets subreddit is, uh, just a word of warning, if you're thinking of doing it, there is a lot of crude and crass and inappropriate language being bandied about on this subreddit. Oh yeah, lots. It is Reddit after all, and as they themselves put it on their um, description, they're like, it's it's if it's like if 4chan got a Bloomberg terminal. So, yeah, that kind of that literally says it all. But yeah, it's for as crass as their language is, and as meme based, and you know, very millennial slash Zoomer. Uh, as much millennial slash zoomer nihilism as in, you know, the general bent of the subreddit, they're pretty well researched and, you know, they make, you know, some pretty educated calls on things, it seems, even if their language is very couched in like nihilism and ridiculousness and, you know, they classic, like, you know, kind of bro offensive terms for things being thrown about, like, they have some pretty not great terms that they call themselves under, but yeah. Anyways, yeah, that it's it's a funny bit of cognitive dissonance. It really is, and if you were to go back, uh, and you know, uh, you'd have to go back a very long ways to see what the genesis, the origins of this uh, uh, thrust, uh, this attention that go- that Wall Street Bets is paying towards the GameStop stock really is. You're going back like what, two years or something, um, according to an article I found on Bloomberg that actually wrote about this very subject just earlier this week, and I believe I linked it to you as well, that uh, the origins for this were actually a very thoroughly detailed and researched piece written by one member of the community back in 2019 who pointed out, who did a lot of diving into the numbers, positions, and whatnot, and felt that, and wrote that, and argued that GameStop is actually not in as dire shape as everyone would generally believe looking at it, uh, A, because it's a brick-and-mortar retailer, B, the bent of the gaming community now, or the thrust of the gaming community is more towards digital downloads than physical purchases, uh, and C, they're in malls and shopping malls, and those are steadily on the way out, of course, uh, 
the impact even more exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic. And but it this piece actually laid out that actually GameStop as a company has a lot of cash on hand. They still have, you know, good name recognition, good name value, and they've started to, you know, actually trim the fat of maybe some underperforming stores and whatnot. And you know, that started back in twenty nineteen. The real uptake in attention that Wall Street bets really came last year when I think they A discovered that hedge funds and other you know, old moneyed institutional investors had shorted 140% of the company's stock. So there was more of the company's stock being borrowed out and sold around than what actually existed in the common pool of shares of the company, which seems ridiculous and illegal, but I'm sure the old money world, uh, know enough people, know enough, uh, accountants and whatnot to make it all seem on the up and up. Yeah, and that's the part, you know, that we were talking about that, you know, really should have the regulation maybe put around it. But again, as you also mentioned, we've been around long enough that we know that that's probably not going to be the part that gets regulated. No, probably not. Uh, I'm sure, as I mentioned to you even before we started this, uh, the scapegoat will likely be the tr- the Robinhood trading app as well as the Wall Street Bets community. Those will be the ones that draw a lot of attention from regulators, old money people, uh, the friends of the old money people in the, you know, business media and whatnot. Uh, and no attention will really be paid towards the fact that you can short 140% of a company's stock more than what actually exists. Yeah. You know, that will never be impacted. The ability to even short a stock as a vehicle, which, you know, as you said off the top, we don't fully understand it because it's a ridiculous concept that you can simply borrow something that you don't own then, you know, borrow something, turn around and sell that thing you don't own, and then just give it back to the, you know, place you borrowed it from, and you've made a profit in the process. But why are you even able to sell the thing you borrowed in the first place? Yeah. Like, you can't turn around and sell a rental car that you got from Enterprise or whatnot. Yeah. You can't. You can't yeah, that's, tur- I think, the perfect analogy. Yeah, you can't turn around and sell a book that you got borrowed from the library. Yeah, like if it's a super rare book, you can't just take it out, sell it right away because you know that the it, whatever edition printing of the book from the library was super rare and then buy it off of Amazon for some tiny price and then you know slap all the library stickers back on that copy of the book and then return that. They're probably going to have questions. Like they probably have descriptions of the book of like – and pictures and stuff likely. Like they don't just catalog nothing. Like there's there's – stuff checks and balances in place for things like why aren't like I, I think the rental car thing is a very apt thing though like you were you came up with a good analogy for that before yeah you you know imagine if you uh you know rented a car for the weekend from enterprise avis budget dollar you know whatever rental car company is in your area but you rent a car for the weekend you get it Friday, and then basically once you drive off the uh, the rental car lot, you turn around and you sell it for twenty grand. But your car is due, say Monday. You still have to get it back. You still have to return a car to the rental company uh, that you you know they're expecting something back come Monday. So weekend goes by, but you manage to buy the car back through whatever circumstances for five grand. You sold it initially. Day you got it for twenty grand, you're buying it back for five grand. And then you return it back to the rental car company on Monday. Well, you've made 15 grand in profit. And that's shorting a stock. 
in a very inelegant and I, I feel accurate, although I don't understand all the intricacies of it. Nutshell. Yeah. So you can see how to an outside person, not steeped in the business world, not steeped in the business community, it seems like a ridiculous concept. Yeah. Like to me, the, the borrowing part is the part that doesn't make any sense to me. Like why in anyone's right mind would they lend out something to someone that is, you know, knowing that this other person is going to be making money off of it in that way. Like what's, unless there's actually some collusion, like unless it's like GameStop, um, key shareholders deciding to lend these stocks out to be sold immediately and then bought back. And then they actually just make money off of the loss with the people who borrowed them to short them. But then that is collusion, right? Uh, you would think so, but I'm sure it could be argued differently by people who can afford very good lawyers. Yeah, probably. But yeah, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it seems like a very seedy practice and Wall Street bets just literally had enough of it. Yeah, as they discovered in their research, like, hey, GameStop is shorted to 140%. What the hell? And seemingly in the discussions, they kind of came up uh, with the realization that, hey, you know, at some point, all these hedge funds and, you know, institutional investors, they're going to have to actually return shares to GameStop at some point. Well, I mean, what if we just went and bought up a whole bunch of the shares for really cheap? Then that drives up the price and perhaps drives it up to a point that it's untenable for these hedge funds to then go and pay that new price to have shares to return to the institution where they got it from in the first place. And that's kind of what's been going on for the past month, really, although past several months, uh, that the GameStop uh, share price has been going on the up and up and up. And uh, the people on the Wall Street Bet subreddit have said that they're just going to hold it to the moon and beyond. Yeah, which, you know, good for them for having like that level of stick to and, you know, gumption to not sell and basically use this as a means for, you know, punishing the rich. But, yeah, I mean. <laughs> One of the more entertaining rallying cries I've I've read on the subreddit has been uh, something to the effect of, we can stay stupid for longer than they can stay solvent. <laughs> yes, Perfect. So that kind of is a perfect encapsulation of the uh, approach that the Wall Street Bets subreddit is taking. Where this goes, uh, who knows? But if not for the intervention of uh, the Wall Street or of the Robinhood trading app uh, in the two most recent trading days of activity, uh, limiting what could be bought and sold, uh, I'm sure the share price would have gone up to $500 as these people on Wall Street Bets Reddit were predicting it likely would have reached there. Yeah. So we Anyways, uh, it's, uh we don't know where it's all going to go. Um you know, the old money people will likely still be able to walk away with their old money intact because well, you don't uh, become an old money investor by uh you know, being fast and loose and not having uh friends in the right places. Yeah, knowing a lawmaker or two that you can pay off or sorry, lobby. You, you know, just float uh, and run ideas past. Yeah, just, you know, workshop some, workshop some, th workshop some things that you want to just talk, 
kind of talk about. Yeah, you just want to have a conversation. That's all. You know, you just want to put some things by them and, uh, you know, just uh, get their feedback. That's all. That's all you're doing. You're just talking. You're just talking is all. Yeah. You know, the unmarked brown envelope? Well, I don't know where that came from. Oh, I don't know what, what what's in that envelope. But, you know, it's yours if you want it, I guess. I don't, I don't care. Hey. It's just on this table. You know what they say, finders keepers, and looks like you found it, so uh, better keep it. Yeah. Don't want anything bad happening to that uh, unmarked brown envelope, so you best give it a safe home. <laughs> exactly. But uh, speaking of a lot of money, I think this dovetails nicely into our first of two ludicrous lead-offs this week. It dovetails nicely into the one for this week, but also harkens back to the ones we spoke of on last week's program as well. Yeah, I know we were sort of, well, I, I made the joking, um, thing of like, when will, you know, things like Pokemon cards and magic cards become just basically the thing that people start really heavily investing in now? I mean, now is arguably way too late for magic cards or Pokemon cards, or I guess maybe you'd have to look at whatever the next thing right now is going to be, or whatever the next thing that could be the next magic and or Pokemon card. But yeah, regardless, the state we're at right now is that magic and Pokemon cards can go for a crazy amount of money. In the case of Pokemon cards, if they're first pris like first printing, depending on their quality, they're pretty much generally gonna go for pretty high prices. But magic cards in magic lingo, they call it alpha. Alpha is the first printing, first edition run of magic cards. And basically almost anything from Alpha is going to be worth more than anything from any other set. Um, there, but in particular, there's a few cards, like you have various Moxes, and the legendary expensive card from Alpha is Black Lotus. It's not a legal card to play because it's sort of like it's – if you use it, it's kind of broken. It Like it's it does some crazy mana generation stuff. But um, yeah, long story short – Black Lotus has always been an expensive magic card, but now it's proved, now it's, we kind of know how expensive it's currently sitting. If you have a, a mint condition alpha Black Lotus, there's another part to this too that I don't know if it actually adds to the value or takes away, but, um, yeah. So without talking myself too much into a hole here, Basically, this week or this past week, uh, an ultra rare Magic the Gathering Alpha Black Lotus card uh, did sell for five hundred eleven thousand U.S. dollars. Uh, they say, well, they, a part of this card's mystique too is that it was signed by the uh, the artist, the original artist of the Black Lotus picture, uh, Christopher Rush. Well, the card itself wasn't signed, but the case was. Yes, um, yes. But yeah, so as yeah, just I, I had to clarify that myself because I reread the story and I was like, well, how is this considered mint condition if it has a signature on it? But no, no, it wasn't the card itself that was signed. It was the case that the card was in was signed, which is okay, fair enough. Now, I, I don't know actually how much having this guy's signature bumps the price up, but it's just another fact of the card, so it's worth mentioning. It is, and uh, another fact that uh, likely went into this card and its value, you know, going for 511,000 US dollars is the fact that it was graded as a, uh, as a 10, a 10 out of 10. Uh, I believe the, uh, the, uh, group PWCC, which is a, uh, an outlet that deals in selling 
uh, and auctioning of collectible cards from sports cards, Pokemon cards, magic cards, whatever the case might be. They do collectible cards. Uh, they graded this and called it the single finest Alpha Black Lotus that it had ever brokered for sale. A 10 out of 10. Yeah, so in the last three years, four years in particular, three years I'd say, Black Lotus has, like Alpha Black Lotuses have been jumping up in price significantly um, in 2018 and Alpha Black Lotus went for $87,000 and last year, one went for $250,000, but yeah, it's, it looks like it's doubling every year and a half or so. So does this mean that next, you know, in 2022, we're going to see a Black Lotus Alpha sell for a million dollars? I believe we possibly will. I mean, if it's this one that has the signature and is graded as 10 out of 10, yeah, this could be a million dollar magic card. And wouldn't yeah. that just be mind-boggling to to see, read, hear, and think about? Yeah, pretty much. Now, again, uh, maybe uh, this will be something that uh, some of the people on on the Wall Street Bets subreddit are able to buy with their uh, their GameStop uh, profits. Yeah, if they if they don't hold, if they decide to sell. <laughs> I mean, there is one yeah. you, the one user on the uh, the Wall Street Bet subreddit who posts the uh, daily update at the end of the trading day. You know, here's what his portfolio and his uh, holdings are at this point, and what he's got. And I think the other day I read he had like roughly forty seven, maybe forty eight million in his account. Now that's oh. spread between like, oh yeah, yeah, no, he's he's done well. He's the uh, one user deep effing value who ne- is now having a yeah. lot of writings uh being posted about him i think even in the new york times but of his the screenshots he posts he's got you know a position just holding shares just common shares he's got a position i think holding like a a short or some sort of like long type contract and then he's got cash because he sold some positions earlier on he's got at least 13 14 million in cash yeah so you know it's actually really funny i uh I did, you know, when talking to a, a guy at work about this the other day, uh, we were talking about it and I pulled up one of the screenshots of, of the user deep effing value. You know, the, the monetary value, the dollar figures are just absolutely crazy to read and think about. But then you look at the percentage change in their position and it was something like one was the uh, share price. His holding in that was up like 2,200%, but then his holding in the price of the like short slash long contract, whatever, uh, was up 163,000%. Oh man. Which is not a real number, but actually also a real number. Yeah. Otherwise, that just would not work out. But yes, so in one aspect of his portfolio, he's up 163,000%. Yeah. And the rest of us out here are just going to work like common, you know, common schmucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd i be lying if I said this hasn't pe- more piqued my interest in this whole, like, using one of these trading apps for myself to just try to do something about it, but you know. 
it's a big oh. world. It's a big scary world. You know, where do you uh where do you jump in? When do you jump in? How do you jump in? Yeah. It's like a river that's uh, just constantly churning and there's uh, always a strong current, you know. You know you you know you got to jump in at some point, but like just kind of on the edge of the riverbank, just kind of like hedging like, "Oh, okay. Maybe now." No. How about now? Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But uh, speaking of money, I'm sure also something that uh, the people who make money off the uh, GameStop stock and perhaps those on Wall Street bets uh, will be putting their earnings towards, their profits towards, is this, because it's a completely stupid and ridiculous thing that uh, apparently is, in fact, a real thing. We first talked about it last summer when it was first announced. Uh, there were plans that would uh, it would be, I guess, further revealed or officially released in the fall, that was delayed by weeks and weeks and weeks, and then, actually, right around Christmas time, it was officially announced, officially shown off as being a real, true thing. Uh, but of course, given the craziness of the Christmas, you know, holidays, and then start the new year, and then the craziness of the new year, and we had to recap the year before, we are finally now getting to talk about the fact that yes, the world is finally going to see the KFC console. I, I believe it's pronounced KF console. I mean, like Kentucky Fried console. Cause yes, yeah, but still the the KFC console, but also KF console. Yes. So yes. Kentucky Fried the Chicken console put together by the company KFC. Yes, yes, the Colonel and his chickens are making a gaming console. Yeah. Now we say console. There should be some air quotes around that name because this isn't a console in the traditional way we think of a Switch or a PS5 or Xbox, you know, whatever. This seems more like just a really fancy custom case that's been put together for the KFC company. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's, I mean, it, I don't think anyone had any doubts about this, but it's just a PC. It is a PC I mean, with a unique case put together by Cooler Master. Now, in the bottom of the case that is made to look like a bucket of chicken, a KFC bucket of chicken, uh, I, is it the, wait, is it the bottom or the top where there's the uh, actual hardware and then the other spot is where they have the warming drawer? Yeah. But yeah, there's, there's a warming drawer for your fried chicken. Along with all the hardware contained inside, apparently it's running on a uh, Cooler Master NC100 chassis, includes an Intel NUC9 uh, and an Asus-powered GPU. Those can be freely swapped out. It's also got a Seagate Barracuda 1TB solid state uh, and have PCIe M NVMe speeds that are six times faster. Yeah. So it's going to do 4K, uh, VR ready up to 240 frames per second and also have, oh, the official name. It's not a warming drawer. It's a chicken chamber. <laughs> yeah. Um, to me, like, yeah, the only thing that's not clear to me is if it's running windows or if they have like their own operating system on top of this, maybe something Android based. That's not clear. Or if they have their own, um, like, game, uh, or if it just runs Steam or something like that. Like, I don't know if it has its own, uh, marketplace for games or if there's going to be any 
exclusives for this, but chances are it's probably just a PC that has a funny form factor, basically. Yes, uh, I can certainly see that being the case. And at this current moment, no word on release date or pricing yet have been announced for this KF console. This very unique unique take on a uh, PC housing. Uh, although I don't see this, I, I I have a hard time envisioning this being something put out for wide public release, uh, and instead see this more as something offered as like a a prize and some sort of promotion, a giveaway, whatever. Yeah. It's, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not clear how long this thing's going to be sold for. If they're actually doing this as like a, just a short term joke, like, I don't know if this is like a more of a long term play for them to properly get into gaming. None of this is actually clear. <laughs> Well, there actually is an official KFC gaming Twitter handle, uh, where you can, for whatever reason, uh, KFC has like a specific gaming marketing stream, literally at KFC gaming. So they're trying to attract the gaming audience to come eat and buy fried chicken or buy then eat fried chicken. Yeah. You don't eat it and pay for it later. That's not how KFC works. <laughs> no. So. The KF, uh, KF console, we will update you as more details become available about it in the future. But for right now, it is a thing that exists in the world. It is a ridiculous thing that exists in the world and continues on the trend we have seen through the past, what, couple of years of KFC taking some really unique, really ridiculous marketing tactics. Yeah. There's the, uh, I think what the 11 herbs and scented, uh, suntan lotion. They had the, uh, you know, original recipe. Well, they had their, they had their fire log one year or actually I think it was this past year they had a fire log available for, you know, like, um, like Christmas style fire log where you could just burn it and it would smell like fried chicken. They also had a few different, um, kind of crazy crossover media things like they, they had a they had a crossover with DC Comics a few years ago where you know the the Colonel Sanders from the evil one of the evil um alternate universes you know the one where the evil superman was was basically trying to take over the Colonel or KFC him and his KFC were trying to take over the KFC in this timeline Right? Well, Unless I'm remembering this wrong. No, you are remembering it accurately. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, you could, the big differentiation between, you know, this universe is this timeline's Colonel Sanders and the evil one were that, uh, the evil Colonel Sanders and the evil KFC did things the easy way. They, they didn't put the time or effort or, or care or love into, you know, the chicken and getting it breaded properly or anything of that nature or, or cooking it, uh, you know, with the same yeah, because, love and care. Yeah, I, I think it was like a two word thing that was like opposite to whatever, like, I don't remember exactly what KFC's slogan that they were trying to say here was like, like, like good and tasty or something. And theirs was like cheap and easy. Or whatever it was. Oh yeah, something like that. And so this universe is Colonel Sanders had to team up with like Green Lantern in the Flash. Yeah. 
and to try and fend off the uh, advances and attacks of uh, evil Colonel Sanders and whatnot. So, yeah, uh, there's really nothing KFC won't do for a uh, ridiculous marketing uh, attack, and clearly uh, their own PC housing is the next thing. Yeah. But let us move off the ridiculous and expensive business news of the week to some uh, possibly expensive gaming business news of the week. Um We've spoken a lot over the last several weeks, several months of lawsuits flying around in the gaming community, specifically of the efforts that Epic Games has undertaken to really try and bring Apple to to court and bring Apple to justice for their handling of apps on the iOS uh, or through the of the App Store and apps in the App Store on iOS and uh, uh, Mac OS platforms. Basically, they don't want to pay or have other people pay the Apple tax, the 30% commission that uh, Apple takes with every transaction. So that is the majority of lawsuits we've seen in the gaming community. But we actually have uh, two. Well, one's a specific lawsuit, although one's a a consumer action that uh, might be taking against, of all companies, Nintendo. Yeah. So Nintendo, um, it's sort of been a long-time problem that it's not super prevalent. I mean, it happened, it seems to happen every now and then. I mean, I've, I think I've sort of faced it on mine, on my switch, but I, the problem went away when I did a controller reset, but I think it's more persistent with other people. And it's a thing called Joy-Con drift. Um, I mean, they call it Joy-Con drift. I've faced it with a PlayStation controller as well. I think it's just anytime there's an analog controller. It's basically when, the, one of the analog sticks stops recognizing its center position correctly, and it'll just basically cause your character to drift in one direction or something tied to whatever stick to drift when, you know, it's in a neutral position because, you know, it doesn't have it, it's X, Y zeroed out correctly. So this has been, I guess, such a persistent problem for the Nintendo Switch in particular that now there's a couple of class action, well, one class action lawsuit and a possible investigation now uh, in a couple of different areas in the world uh, that Nintendo is facing. So firstly, here here in Canada, our home and native land, where we're from of this podcast, um, there's a class action lawsuit brewing up for Joy-Con Drift. There is, and it uh, was filed initially by... Uh, back in the middle of January by the uh, Canadian law firm Lambert Avocat Inc., which immediately tells me this is a French-Canadian law firm uh, because Avocat yes. is French for lawyer or advocate. We oui. <laughs> C'est vrai. But the... C'est vrai. <laughs> uh, spoken like a true Anglophone defiling the French language. We. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> But the, but Lambert Avocat Inc., they filed an application uh, to be permitted to bring a class action suit against Nintendo in a bid to, quote, obtain a compensation for all Quebec consumers who bought the Nintendo Switch and Nintendo Switch-like gaming systems, as well as Joy-Con and Nintendo Switch Pro controllers. Uh, their paperwork says that, quote, goods purchased must fit for the purposes for which uh, goods of that kind are ordinarily used and must be durable in normal use for a reasonable length of time. Uh, and therefore, uh, the Joy-Con drift, which is the common problem you get with Switch controllers, uh, either, you know, the Joy-Cons themselves or in the Pro Controller, um, uh, those problems... Re- 
resulting from there, uh, they constitute, quote, an important, serious, and hidden defect. Nintendo failed to mention an important fact in a rep- in a representation made to consumers, uh, the quality of its products, which is a key element likely to affect the consumer's informed decision in purchasing uh, a product, end quote. So basically, their contention that Nintendo did not uh, disclose the problems of the Joy-Con drift, and thus people bought accordingly with Switches, or bought Switches, that had these problems not knowing it ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not, they're not wrong, I guess. It's true. The Joy-Con uh, uh, analog uh, joystick drifting problem has been basically around since the Switch launched back in 2017. It has been a problem since then, and there hasn't really been a, a good remedy offered by Nintendo to this point. No. I I seem to remember there was some sort of thing where you could apply to get your controller fixed, but I think it required you to actually mail your controller in or mail your Joy-Cons in, and then Nintendo would fix them and then mail them back. But it's like, what do you do in the meantime? Like, you don't want to be completely without Joy-Cons, right? Like, Well, yeah, you quite possibly need them to play your Switch, unless you have some other... Uh, you know, controllers, a pro controller or some other Bluetooth controllers or whatnot, but you, they are an important element of the Switch and your Switch is kind of, uh, not whole without them. Like, yeah. you can't really take your Switch on the go if you don't have Joy-Cons. No, you, you can't. Un- unless you're bringing around the actual main screen part of the Switch inside the, uh, HDMI holster, but, uh, you know, that seems unlikely. Yeah. So uh, there's already a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit um, that Nintendo is facing in the United States about this issue. It was filed a couple years ago, citing the defective thumbsticks on the Joy-Cons. Uh, so if that will follow its own path through the United States legal system and now Canada, uh, or at least a law, for- law firm in Canada launching one as well on the same issue. But it's not just North America who are getting in on the uh, Joy-Con drift problem, as Nintendo is now facing issues in Europe as well. Yeah, so, you know, that's the second part of this that I mentioned earlier. Uh, The European Consumer Organization, uh, you know, has called for a European-wide investigation into Nintendo Switch's Joy-Con drift after receiving more than 25,000 complaints from countries all across Europe. Uh, So... Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. The vast majority of these 25,000 cases, which is, um, <coughs> I should say 88% of these cases, sorry, um, Nintendo Switch owners reported that the issues with these Joy-Con controllers happened within the first two years of use, which, yeah, I, I'd think that, you know, that's kind of similar to the issues I was facing, same kind of time frame. Um, but yeah. Really, when you think about it, it's kind of unacceptable. Two years is not very long in terms of time used for um, a video game controller, right? Like, like I, I have, I mean, they're they're a lot simpler, but I have you know Nintendo controllers that are thirty years old that still work fine. So it's uh, 
yeah, very kind of upsetting when something like this just kind of randomly stops working and then the replacements, they're not cheap things to replace. No, no, they aren't. Uh, and also, I mean, there's the general frustration of trying to do something about, oh, your Joy-Con is drifting again. And there's nothing you can do about it, nor is there any sort of easy remedy that Nintendo has to offer as well. So it's more just, oh, if this is the problem, well, shit, you know, wh- what am I to do now? Yeah. And even to go and buy replacement Joy-Cons uh, to replace your defective ones, well, then it's only a matter of time before you encounter the same problem with those newly purchased replacement Joy-Cons as well. Yeah. So it just becomes like a vicious cycle of spending money and then a couple of years having to spend more money. It's until, of course, you know, the Switch becomes irrelevant. You have to buy the new system. But then what problem will exist with that one? Will they have fixed the Switch or they, will they fix the Joy-Con drift issue by then? Assuming that the next system will have some variation on the Joy-Con? Uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, we of course, uh, will have to wait and see, but you know, you mentioned you've got basically old NES controllers that still work after 30 some odd years. Even Super Nintendo controllers still work per- perfectly fine after 30 years. Hell, I've still got GameCube and N64 controllers, which have analog joysticks to them. That still work perfectly fine after, you know, 20, 25 years. Yeah. Now, I, I think it's something to do with, well, the, the type of analog control sticks maybe because I have, you know, PlayStation 1 DualShock works perfectly fine still. And I got that probably 23 years ago, but I have a PlayStation 4 DualShock that is starting to face drift. So I, I don't know, like maybe it's just something to do with, you know, um, maybe manufacturing standards in the last seven, eight years, maybe I'm, I'm not sure. It's hard to say. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's hard to say certainly, but, uh, you mentioned there was 25,000 complaints filed and with 88% of the cases citing, uh, issues, uh, and countries, where switch owners have complained, and this is why it's, you know, through the European Commission, uh, you know, switch owners filing complaints from France, Belgium, Portugal, Italy, Norway, the Netherlands, Slovakia, Slovenia, and Greece as well. So that's a good collection of countries. It's not just all centered around one area where you could maybe say it's a bad batch. No, this is, this is an absolute worldwide problem of Joy-Con drift. Yeah. Now, it's not exactly. it's not a worldwide problem, you know, like the coronavirus is a worldwide problem. This is a worldwide problem for Nintendo. Yeah, and the the impact of this is, you know, not a wildly deferring uh, medical maladies that, you know, might be long lasting, but just, you know, you can't play your game correctly. So, when when we put it all into, you know, grand scheme of things, doesn't really compare to a coronavirus. <laughs> Just putting that little bit of perspective out there. So, and, and uh, yeah. I thank you for it. I think we're all uh, properly properly realigned with uh, our various privileges checked uh, with that uh, statement. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, so we all appreciate it. So, thank you for that. But uh, it's an annoyance. It's a frustration, and it's in. It's an oddity uh, to come from Nintendo and a product from Nintendo to have problems like this, given that they actually have some pretty high standards and some good quality products that have stood the test of time and can stand test 
stand the test of time, which I obviously can't say. Uh, but yeah, this is just yeah. a weird one-off. Like, what is it about the Switch uh, and its Joy-Cons, its hardware, its makeup, its design that hasn't been remedied either in the first model of the Switch, the new second model of Switch that came out like two years ago, or the Switch Lite? Like, like what is going on and why oh, Why can it not be fixed? Uh and also, I wonder, too, if maybe they're holding off on a, uh, or part, one of the reasons that Nintendo continues to hold off on releasing a Switch Pro version or, you know, high-end refresh of the Switch is because they haven't quite licked the Joy-Con drift problem. Yeah, maybe that that could be true. So we shall see how this all plays out. If you want to read more about the potential for a class action lawsuit here in Canada uh, relating to Nintendo and its Joy-Con drift, uh, we have links to uh, everything here on our homepage for this week's program on the arcadeshow.com. Uh, follow the links, do your reading. If you are in the province of Quebec, maybe this is something that you could potentially get in on. And this may expand beyond the borders of Quebec and become a national class action lawsuit. Understand, these things will take years and years and years to work their way through the courts. Yeah. So, even if you join up and uh, add your name to the list of aggrieved parties, you're not exactly getting money right away. It will take several years, maybe five to seven, if not ten years, before you see a dime. Yeah. But speaking of companies who have basically come under fire from consumer protection agencies, CD Projekt Red, they are really in the hot seat and have been for a couple months now, ever since their disastrous Cyberpunk 2077 launch and subsequent disastrous, um, well, I would say disastrous PR handling of sud, sud disastrous launch. You know, it's, uh, it hasn't really been going well for them. They've they've been putting out a couple of updates here and there for the game, but it still hasn't really been satiating people. Um, and yeah, it's it seems like that's kind of like caught the ire of the actual um, consumer protection agency uh, in Poland, uh, which yeah, depending on the result of their investigation could be disastrous for them as a company in that the company could face a fine of up to 10% of its yearly income. Whew. Which, you know, if, if you're a company at the level of CD Projekt Red, where let's just say you're making, I don't know what how much they make a year. Let's throw a random number out. $100 million. 10% is $10 million. Do you really want to be paying a $10 million fine uh, you wouldn't want to. I don't to. think so. That's a, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a dumb, dumb tax that, uh, you know, <laughs> interesting that Poland, uh, in their consumer protection agency would take the approach of a percentage of a company's annual income as opposed to just a set, you know, amount, a set monetary amount, like 250,000 for first offense or anything like that. No, this, this seems a bit more harsh and, uh, uh, a bit more punitive. And I kind of respect that. Yeah, I respect that too. I mean, the, I guess the, the thing about this being, you know, more toward, more on the side of, um, yeah, them, because, well, CD Project Red, they still do have, I guess, some leftover goodwill built up for, you know, the Witcher franchise and stuff. And, 
you know, maybe this could just kind of help them really kind of, uh, or it would stop them from, you know, kind of taking cyberpunk totally down and like really being like, Oh, actually no, we're, we're, we've taken that down and we're retooling things. So we should be consequence free now because we've given people their money back. And it's just like, Oh no, 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 you're, you're still making money as a company. So we're still going to take that money from you because of your crappy practices. Yes, I, I certainly like that approach. Uh, now specifically what the uh, Polish Office of Competition and uh, Consumer Protection is going to be looking into is the quote unquote confusion around the game's launch. And they have, uh, basically sent notice to CD Projekt Red that they are seeking an explanation around what exactly happened. A spokesperson speaking on the matter said, quote, we are asking the company for explanation regarding problems with the game and actions taken by them. We will check how the developer is working on patches or solving issues preventing playing on various consoles, but also what steps the company is planning to take regarding people who request who requ- requested refunds and are not happy with their purchase because they can't play the game on owned hardware despite assurances by the uh, producer, by the company. So the Consumer Protection Agency in Poland, uh, they've sent notice they have to wait as part of the due process. They have to wait for CD Projekt Red to get back to them, answer some questions. I assume there will be more back and forth on this matter between the Protection Agency and CD Projekt Red. But um, this... This could be a thing that uh, goes on through the course of the year and we see further develop. And one of the possible penalties, as you mentioned, for CD Projekt Red is 10% uh, of their income from the last financial year, which, given the fact that they had the successful launch of Cyberpunk 2077, that buoyed their finances. So that would be an even bigger fine compared to the previous financial year. Uh, alternatively, the Polish... Protection Agency could also ask CD Projekt Red to issue quote-unquote digital bonuses to individuals who bought the game for the previous gen of consoles that had all the problems. How that would all work out remains to be seen, but uh, yeah. So it sounds like uh, if the Polish uh, consumer authority here doesn't receive satisfaction, stuff's going to happen, and it's not going to be good for CD Projekt Red. No. And I say, good on the Polish Protection Authority. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's sad to say, but it's refreshing to hear, you know, an agency like that actually taking a hardline stance for the people these days. Cause it seemed like, I don't know, I guess maybe we're just used to, you know, hearing that the crazy corruption in the, country to the south of Canada and things like that for the last several years. And um, just basically seeing basically nothing really happen in a positive sense or getting the, getting the sense that nothing really positive has been happening for the general public in a weird, you know, general way that might just be, I mean, I don't mean that like for every single area of life, but you know, a lot of the times when you hear people like complain about things like this, you often hear nothing happen. So it's good to hear something potentially happen. Exactly. And uh, I mean, that kind of ties into what we started off the show talking about Wall Street Bets and the GameStop stock and uh, why the people of Wall Street Bets were so motivated to take up the cause and champion GameStop as a company and their share price. 
it's to, you know, was to really get back at the, uh, hedge fund companies, uh, for their, you know, clear and obvious, uh, market manipulation or attempts at market manipulation. And, uh, I mean, if we go back even further, say 10, 12 years, the great recession, quote unquote, when shorting was a, and the shorting of companies and stocks in the economy was a major reason why everything took a, you know, severe nosedive in 2008 into 2009. Yeah. I, I seem to remember shorting also continued or carried into such areas like real estate and stuff too. So you would end up with these crazy, like, well, I, well, that, that plus subprime mortgages and stuff like that. But anyways, yeah, massive problems caused basically by financial greed flying too close to the sun. And instead of learning their lesson, they just basically got bailed out by the government several times, including this time, <laughs> which was another point of, um, you know, contention with the wall street bets community of like, Hey, you're struggling to get me my $1,600 like COVID check, but you know, you're, you're able to bail out a hedge fund for $13 billion. What the hell is this? Yeah. So, uh, not exactly the most, uh, or not exactly a time of, uh, great consumer protection or great consumer friendliness. Hence, uh, part of, you know, what's fueling the nihilism of the Wall Street bets people. But, uh, at least there was a little glimmer of consumer friendliness from one big company this week. Uh, Microsoft did an about face. They took it on the chin and, uh, had to announce that they would be reversing their plan to boost the prices for Xbox Live Gold. So it came out, I think, earlier in the week that, uh, yes, they were going to be revising the fee structure and the payment and price structure for Xbox Live Gold in its different, uh, durations, its, uh, you know, lengths of uh, membership. And there was just a huge outcry from almost every corner of the internet and the gaming community saying, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Microsoft it may have taken a day or two, but to their credit, they did walk it back and say, okay, okay, whoa, 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 calm down. Yeah. We, we, we hear you put, put the, put the pitchforks and, uh, torches down. Yeah. Put the gun down, son. <laughs> but, uh, so they walked it back yeah. their full statement saying, quote, so we messed up today and you were right to let us know, uh, connecting and playing with friends is a vital part of gaming. And we failed to meet the expectations of players who count on it every day. As a result, we have decided not to change the Xbox live gold pricing structure. We're turning this moment into an opportunity to bring Xbox live more in line with how we see the player at the center of the experience. Free to play games will truly be free and you will no longer need an Xbox live gold membership to play those games on Xbox. We are working hard to deliver this change as soon as possible in the coming months. If you're an Xbox Live Gold member already, you stay at your current price for renewal. New and existing members can continue to enjoy Xbox Live Gold for the same prices they pay today. So in the US, that's 10 bucks a month, uh, $25 three months, $40 for six months, or $60 for 12 months. So the gist of the uh, price changes that they were looking at doing and what they initially announced is that a $60 price point would have gotten you six months instead of 12 months. So they almost doubled the price of the service. Yeah. So it wouldn't be an incremental change, like say the price of your Netflix goes up every so often, like every year, every two years or something like that. This would have been just a wholesale radical change in the price that you were paying. And that's what uh, upset a lot of people and understandably so. 
Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, good for Microsoft for actually listening to the people and, you know, deciding that, well, they don't need that much more money, which is a weird thing to say. Like, (laughs) anyways, yeah. And good for them for actually taking this as an opportunity to to bring the free-to-play games in front of the paywall, finally. Yeah, because, you know, it's... um, yeah, especially, I mean, we'll see if that continues after the pandemic is over, unless this is just sort of them trying to earn a little bit more brownie points for people while they're quarantined and really without any sort of proper way of how to hang out with their friends otherwise. But, um, yeah. So good on them for finally, finally doing that. I, I mean, that's been basically since the advent of, uh, uh, I think the Xbox Live as a platform, isn't it, that they've had the free-to-play games included behind the paywall? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I don't. Well, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. I really don't know a lot about the Microsoft side of things. I, I've always had a PlayStation, so I'm not entirely sure. I don't have Xbox Live. I don't really know, but yeah. So, turning our attention to other areas of big gaming business, though, as uh, that seems to be the crux of this week's episode, gaming business in dollars and cents and whatnot, uh, you know, and figures that are just too big for you and I and other of other members of the common people out there in the world. Uh, we spoke last fall about a, a deal that was in place, actually, for Take-Two Interactive to acquire Codemasters and actually add some racing game and racing game development to their portfolio because that's just kind of a total blind spot for uh, Take-Two as a company. But it turns out a uh, funny thing happened on the way to consummating that deal EA stepped in and offered more money. Yes, um, from one big company to another, basically jumping in saying, actually, um, yeah, we're, uh, yeah, so I guess just for context, uh, Take Two wanted, well, they, they agreed on a price tag of 994 billion US dollars to snatch up, uh, Codemasters which is not an insignificant amount of money. That's very shy of a, or sorry, I, I assume that's 994 million. Yes. Billion. Sorry. Um, but yes, uh, yes. Uh, and then not an insignificant amount of money, uh, just shy of a billion. But then EA decided to, I almost want to say, I mean, it's, it's not the same amount of money and it's not the, a decimal place in this case is, different than, you know, being the jerk who bets one cent more on the price is right or whatever. <laughs> uh, but, you know, EA swooped in with a $1.2 billion offer, which was then accepted by the Codemasters board. So, you know, it sounds like, you know, one versus 1.2 doesn't sound like a lot until you realize, oh, wait, that's that's $200 million. Fair amount of money. So, Yeah. Yeah, an almost uh, 20% increase uh, from over and above the Take-Two offer for Codemasters. Uh, so they will join the Electronic Arts family of companies. And now there's just going to be even more racing under the EA umbrella. Um, so good for them. Uh, I mean, they'll be under the same new general EA umbrella as Criterion, who do Burnout and Need for Speed. So... Uh, uh, then comes in Codemasters, who do the F1 games, they do Dirt, they do Grid. So EA trying to corner the market on racing games. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but uh, it's all coming from one place. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, I guess. Though, when I look at something like that, there's part of me in the back of my head that kind of thinks, like, this is inching towards an antitrust thing, isn't it? I mean, uh, yes and no. I, any Any game studio can develop a racing game if they want. Yeah. That's true. There, there's nothing specific or unique that uh, these companies having their racing games is depriving other people from being able to develop and whatnot their own games. So, um, but it's it's just a weird coalescence of all the racing seems to be under one roof. Now I wonder if uh, you know. I'm sure EA will continue uh, the annual tradition of just cranking out games. Uh, not so much with their racing games, so I don't know if we're going to see an annual Dirt or an annual F1 or Grid game. But uh, at the very least, maybe EA takes up a fan cause and we get another hot, or take yeah, we get another Micro Machines game from Codemasters. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Just, just call me crazy. I'm just going to float that idea out there. I, I I would want that thing, so that'd be cool. Well, well, I I say maybe, but I also have no idea if. Micro, micro machines is a popular thing anymore, or if they even make micro machines as a thing anymore. Ooh, good question. Like, yeah, like I, I know Hot Wheels are still sort of a thing, but, but when we were kids, micro machines were almost as prevalent as Hot Wheels, but I don't know if that's still the case. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, in the times when I've uh, gone through the toy aisles, say, having to get something for my, you know, young niece or nephew, I don't really recall seeing micro machines. There's still Hot Wheels, but a lot of the shelf space now is taking up with uh, uh, with Monster Jam and Monster Trucks. So going the opposite direction of micro machines. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. So so maybe maybe they need to move away from micro machines and um, have some sort of monster truck game. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, wishful thinking on our part, you know, old, old people who played video games 30 years ago want to see new, new versions of those games now. I think more aptly describes the thing that we're talking about right now. <laughs> oh yes, very much so. There's no denying it. I will fully concede to that point. Well played. Points on that exchange. <laughs> But one last news item to get to here this week, continuing the theme of uh, gaming business news. Uh, we spoke a couple weeks ago about the fact that Super Nintendo World, the first of the Nintendo-themed theme parks opening up at Universal Studios in Tokyo, Japan, announced a release date. They announced that release date of being February 4th. Uh, now that release date has been pushed back because the coronavirus pandemic uh, is getting worse again. Second wave, possibly third wave, as it's going through various countries, things not really looking that great, perhaps in Japan at the moment, or at least the uh, Osaka region where the park is located, wanting to be uh, uh, preemptive about things. So they have the, uh, the regional government has uh, placed the Osaka region into a state of emergency. And uh, I, I mean, there's no telling when it's going to be lifted. So the... Uh, a press release announcing this said, quote, as a result of careful consideration of the current situation from various aspects when issuing the quote-unquote state of emergency to Osaka Prefecture, 
January 13th, the new area, Super Nintendo World, scheduled for opening on February 4th, will be postponed until after the state of emergency is lifted. This according to a note on the park's official website. Very unfortunate, as it was looking to be all ready to go, looked really slick, looked really interesting. Uh, now we will have to wait just that much longer to see how it all plays out, how it all actually looks. But there's no real word yet on when it's going to open, because how can you actually set a date for something like that? Yeah, exactly. Really, really hard to say. Yeah, really hard to say. Almost impossible to say at this current juncture and just where we are with uh, the cycle of things in the world and the pandemic. So, I mean, it seemed ambitious. It seemed, uh, you know, I mean, it was a it was a nice ray of hope that, oh, there's the Super Nintendo World opening and they've got a release date and everything. Well, or an opening date. Well, yay. That, you know, maybe feels like things are maybe getting somewhat back to normal in the world. And, and then, no, we're slapped down and reminded, oh, no, no, we're still not in the normal times again. All right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely not the case yet. Yeah, no, that's a that's a reality check coming back into play. So uh that is so if you had any plans of traveling outside the country to go visit Super Nintendo World in Japan, what the hell's wrong with you? Why would you do such a thing? This is not the time for that. Shame on you. Yeah, exactly. So, uh you'll just have to wait uh, until a future point when you can actually go visit it and not really have as many cares. Also, it just kind of seems weird and perhaps even wrong in this current time of social distancing, masks, and just reduced capacity for things for there to be a theme park opening up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... That's not a necessity. No, no, it's not. You know, call me crazy, not a necessity. <laughs> exactly. So instead of traveling outside to uh, enjoy theme parks that are, you know, new, shiny, and have so many bells and whistles and technological advancements, instead take your time to stay home, be safe, and uh, just get reacquainted with some things that are old, possibly taking up some space on your shelves, or perhaps you have them available to you through whatever digital platform or digital means uh, to entertain yourself until such time as we can go outside, see other people, see the nice things again. Yes, we are nicely transiting transitioning into our blast from the past for this week. It's the part of the show where we always like to uh, take a few moments to reminisce about things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries that uh, could be anything from a movie to a TV show to a game to some sort of musical album back when there were full musical albums released and not just songs put up on Spotify. <laughs> Uh, so we have two items yeah. this week. One of them is a game. One of them is a TV series. Uh, where would you like to start this week? Uh, maybe we could, you know, shoot Time's Arrow directly backwards and start with the younger of the two. All right. The younger of the two things that is now being pierced in the aorta with the Arrow of Time is... <laughs> very violent uh, image I'm conjuring up there is a yes. game a game for the PC or back in the uh day as it was known your personal computer that was released for uh, the old MS-DOS platform back on January 29th of 1996 it was the third game in this franchise and was also the last game in this franchise for a very long period of time we are going to speak now about Duke Nukem 3D yeah, so Duke Nukem was sort of 
before Duke Nukem 3D, it was a side-scrolling game franchise, if you want to call it that. It was, well, uh, you could call it that. <laughs> I don't know what you else would call it. It was a side-scrolling game franchise where, you know, it was sort of like a car- more cartoony styled, like a lot of side-scrollers of the time were. I mean, I don't really remember them too well. I do just remember that they were a thing and that, you know, they had a little bit of raunchy humor here and there, but, you know, with the, you know, with the success of Wolfenstein 3D and Doom, 3D gaming was sort of like had been proved out at that point. And I guess in particular, the first person shooter genre, well, it's, it was in its infancy still, but it was still also kind of proved out with the popularity of the two aforementioned things I mentioned. So I guess 3D Realms decided to, um, pivot the Duke Nukem f- character and game to be one of those. And they took, you know, all the stuff from those games that, you know, the game Duke Nukem 3D wasn't super different from, you know, Doom or um, Wolfenstein 3D or anything like that. Like, you know, game style, like a lot of these games were kind of very samey in terms of like their look and feel, but Duke Nukem 3D took it kind of a little bit more of an adult slash more childish direction. <laughs> if you, you know, if, if it's possible to do both, they did both. Um, with Duke Nukem himself being sort of like, you know, more of a muscle bound idiot that just had, you know, a bunch of action phrases that were just ripoffs of, you know, Schwarzenegger or, you know, Stallone or whatever, various lines from various famous B movies of the day, you know, including they live, which was Roddy Roddy Piper. Um, yeah. So Duke Nukem, uh, as a, I mean, really cemented himself kind of in, in gaming history with Duke Nukem 3d, because that's really the first time we could actually hear the raunchiness and get the full sense of the character, the full realized sense of the character in the third dimension, because the third game Duke Nukem 3d here, also was the first one to actually have the character voiced by John St. John. Yes. And just add that um, real muscle-bound, you know, swagger cockiness to the character. Yeah. Side note, both Mike, the legend, and myself have met John St. John before. And, um, yeah, he he definitely likes to tell people he's Duke Nukem, and he does the Duke Duke Nukem voice at every chance he can possibly get. Sure does, and also he uh, he likes to drink. He sure does. <laughs> that's that's one of those fun things about you know I don't we have neither one of us have been to Magfest in a good long long time, but you know one of the ones that we went to years and years ago, John St. John, like we ended up in a couple of room parties here and there, and I actually think what was it two or three room parties we ended up in, and John St. John ended up in the same room parties that we were in. Yeah, that sounds about, that sounds about right. I think it was, I guess, whatever that night it was of our trip down to Magfest. He, uh, I guess, may have been done all his duties, or just he was there for the parties. Like he would do whatever uh, presentations, whatever seminars, and uh, autograph signings, and just appearances during the course of the day, like the the obligated stuff. And then come nighttime, he's just there to party. He's got his entourage of people, his handlers, kind of, I guess, making sure he doesn't get too out of hand so he can still make his appearances the next day. But he's still just going from room to room. Like, hey, there's people hanging out here. Let's go here. See what's up. 
And of course, because he's John St. John, the voice of Duke Nukem, he's got that cachet with people. Well, sure, people just let him in. Hey, you know, what are you drinking? Here, you want some of this? All right. How do you say no? <laughs> it's a party. <laughs> but yeah, um, all that aside, like, not, not meant to like super brag about that or anything. It's just kind of amusing how you like to drink and, you know, it, it, there's something weird about like, you know, hanging out with people in like, you know, a hotel room party. And then all of a sudden you hear Duke Nukem go like, say something like, listen here, you little punk. And it's just like, whoa, that's Duke Nukem's voice. <laughs> hey. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. So yeah, Duke Nukem, I think, yeah, they, they really tried to push things, you know, in many ways that they like content wise that they did. The gameplay wise, they didn't push anything. Like it, it was very similar to Wolfenstein 3D and Doom. I would say didn't really bring a lot extra to the gameplay experience over those games, but what they did bring was the content. So Duke Nukem 3D, like whereas those other games, you played kind of like a silent character, like Doom Guy and you know BJ Blazkowicz at those that time. You were just like a face in the bottom of the screen that showed how injured you were. You didn't really have a voice. You didn't say anything. It was just basically an avatar for you, like you yourself playing the game. You could project yourself and your own personality on those guys. Whereas Duke Nukem had his own personality. Like he was basically like a more muscle bound, like more adult oriented Johnny Bravo or something. I would arguably say. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And, With the same amount of swagger, the, you know, big blonde hair, sunglasses, and perpetually chomping on a cigar. Yeah, you know, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, according to Wikipedia, I mean, I, I also remember this, but they sum it up very succinctly. It did incite some controversy due to its violence, erotic elements, and portrayal of women, which was not a very good portrayal of women. It was, uh, yeah, they were basically always like the the damsel in distress, the kind of blonde bimbo, whatever you want to call it, that stereotype that was very prevalent back then. Um, yeah, that like, yeah, it's it was very much a game of the time though, and I think it, one of the one of the problems, like as you said, it was the it was the last Duke Nukem game for a very long time because. The follow-up to Duke Nukem 3D was supposed to be Duke Nukem Forever, which basically had a 17-ish year development cycle or something like that, from what I recall. Um, uh, something like and, that. It, it or, eventually, sorry, eventually, yeah, 15 years. Yeah, eventually came out in 2011 and uh, did not meet expectations because it was a game 15 years in development and it was uh, not good. Not good at all. Yeah, and you know, society changes... Like, despite what people might think, like, society does make changes every few years and, you know, it, we don't really notice it because it happens so gradually to us. But it's like that thing of like opening up a time capsule and when you look back at something that's 15 years old, like, sometimes there's elements of it of like, ooh, I shouldn't have left food in there. Like, ooh, you know, it's just, ooh, that's, that's rotten. That's not, that, that has gone bad. This thing is turned. I should not have left this in here for this long. And there were definitely some elements of Duke Nukem 3D, of, I should say the character Duke Nukem itself, that didn't age well. <laughs> and, you know, things, you know, like, 
they had an opportunity to basically turn it into a interesting fish out of water story or maybe, you know, Duke Nukem trying to come to grips with, you know, 15 years of, you know, maybe being frozen cryogenically or something. They, they could have done anything, but they just tried to push forward with whatever they came up with 15 years ago story-wise. And I don't get the impression that they updated it at all. And then they just, yeah, they released it and it was very, had a very lukewarm and or negative perception or like when it was released, it was, everyone was kind of universally disappointed. I mean, a game in development for 15 years, uh, you're going to expect a lot, but in those 15 years, the game went through many starts and stops, if not uh, whole cloth uh, revisions, and just, uh, uh, it may have been released, or the decision may have been made to release it warts and all, just to finally get the goddamn game out after, uh, I believe, what, uh, Bethesda, was it Bethesda or Gearbox? One of them actually bought- Gearbox. Yeah, Gearbox actually bought the franchise from 3D Realms. Yeah. Slash, they actually just bought so, 3D Realms, and then that, you know, led to a whole, you know, kerfuffle and a whole other set of legal problems with George Broussard and some other people from uh, 3D Realms and whatnot, but, so, we'll see what uh, Gearbox eventually does, if they eventually do anything else with the character of Duke Nukem, because, you know, what you said, the idea of making it a fish-out-of-water story, maybe he's been cryogenically frozen for a while, yeah, that actually would be a, a great you know, entryway into bringing Duke Nukem into the new modern world and perhaps as a satire on things, a satire on old stereotypes and uh, archetype characters from games of the, of yesteryear and whatnot. Yeah. I think some of those things could, uh, and those ideas could certainly work. We'll see if they produce anything new with the character or is it best just to leave Duke Nukem alone for now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to see. I feel like it could have been argued that maybe it would have been best to leave Duke Nukem alone when they released Duke Nukem Forever finally. Or maybe they should have let Sleeping Dogs lie and just nuke the project and start it over with something fresh. Who knows? Anyways, that was Duke Nukem 3D. That, you know, was released in the late 90s, January of 1996. Um, it is 25 years old. Yeah, if we go back to, um, well, 1986, uh, we saw the end of a series that ran for, uh, three years? Four seasons, I think? Yeah. Four seasons? Yeah, not as long as perhaps our, uh, memory banks would tell us it ran for, but, uh, no. only three seasons, but it was one of those cartoons, you know, I watched, uh, in my formative years as a youth, you watched in your, formative years as a youth. It just was one of those cartoons that always seemed to be on for many, many years. Far beyond the three years it, you know, aired in first run syndication for. We were speaking about a cartoon that started the voices of Don Don Adams and uh, Cree Summer, and we are talking about Inspector Gadget. Yes, and two years, by the way. Oh, sorry. It had two seasons. Sorry, two, two seasons. Yeah, anyways. Um, yeah, Inspector Gadget, which when you look at it in hindsight as an adult, it's basically an animated Get Smart. 
Yeah, in, in kind of an animated Get Smart slash, you know, Pink Panther. You know, you can see some of the, uh, you know, approaches uh, in the character of Inspector Gadget through there. I mean, the premise is Inspector Gadget is just a really bumbling detective who's absolutely clueless, but also is a robot with a whole lot of gizmos and gadgets inside his form. Yeah, with, you know, the, like, he's a... I don't want to say, I guess you could call him a cyborg, even though he, his depiction was more like a 1960s gumshoe. But, you know, he, all he, all he would need to do is go, go gadget, whatever. And then he would have like, you know, a helicopter come out of his head or his arms would turn into big, long, you know, extending crazy arms where he could reach something 400 feet away or, you know, he would have springs on his legs or, you know, he'd have a rocket pack come out of his back, things like that. It was basically, the ultimate Deus Ex Machina machine where it's like, oh, go, go gadget. I need this thing right now. Make my body do turn into a spaceship. I don't know. Like, you know, anything like it was, but you know, as a kid, it was also sometimes frustrating to watch this show because you're like, you have a helicopter. Just pull your helicopter out. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's just like, it's like so many problems could have, you know, just been averted really fast by his crazy cyborg abilities. But, you know, obviously that doesn't make a good show for just having all the problems go away the second that they happen, right? So. No, yeah. but it was impressive the, the array of, of gizmos and gadgets he was able to pull out. Like you listed off a whole bunch. Like his neck could even go on a spring and just, you know, raise vertically. He could extend his legs and torso in the same way. I think he had sh like skis come out of his shoes or at least the bottom of his feet. He, like, I think he even had like a camera in his belt buckle or something. He had a lock pick come out of his fingertip. Um, like you name it. Literally, he could do it. Not only that, his car could transform as well. Yeah. From family minivan to, you know, hot roadster. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Inspector Gadget, very interesting character. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> there was a lot of, like, recurring things that they would do. And, yeah, like you said, like, there was 86 episodes, but I think... It felt like it was on for years and years and years because it lived on through syndication and, you know, I don't think either Mike the Legend or myself were watching TV much, even in 1986, you know, like we weren't around in 83 and by 86, you know, we weren't particularly old. And I think by the time we were watching stuff, it would have been late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, it was definitely still on then. And I seem to remember it being on for several years after that because, I mean, you can get a lot of mileage out of 86 episodes of a kid's show. Sure can. I mean, even if you're airing it uh, once a day um, in whatever time slot, well, I mean, you're going to run through those 86 episodes in about three months or so. Uh, that's all well and good. But, you know, kids aren't really going to remember <laughs> for one episode from the next. No, like all you need to do is just run it for the three months run it every now and then on weekends for the next, like, six months, then bring it back and run it for three more months, and then do the same thing. Repeat that for five years, and you've got five years out of a show that ran for two seasons. Yeah, that seems like a uh, a formula to uh, fill hours on your broadcast network. 
Yeah. Also, another thing that I'd like to just kind of bring up about this show, just looking through the credits for things, I, I noted the, the composers of the theme song, I think actually a very large part of, you know, our collective childhood on this program was the music of Shuki Levy and Haim Saban. Which, for the most part, we may not, uh, you know, recognize those names, but they were behind a number of themes from that era of animation. Yeah, I mean, the the most notable is probably the Power Rangers theme song. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of them. I mean, like, they they were responsible for, like, just looking through their credits, like, they go back to the 1970s, like, you see things like Heathcliff and, like, Ulysses 31 and Spider-Woman and then going into the 80s, like Inspector Gadget, the Mr. T theme song, uh, Punky Brewster, uh, Rainbow Bright, She-Ra, um, the real Ghostbusters, like Captain N, the Game Master, like Cops, uh, the Legend of Zelda, like lots and lots of different things. <laughs> then there's like sillier things like in the 1990s, like songs that have been in my head in some capacity for 30 years, like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, like the theme song from that show, or the Samurai Pizza Cats theme song, or the X-Men theme song. Uh, lots and lots of different things, like Battletech, the 94 Spider-Man series, uh, Dragon Ball Z, our North American version of it. Um, yeah, Breaker High, Power Rangers, as I said. Digimon, like tons and tons of different musical things that they did. And yeah, it's, uh, I didn't actually realize that the theme song for the show was Shuki Levy and Haim Saban as well, but there we go. It, there you go. And it's a very, uh, memorable, uh, theme song that once you hear it, I mean, granted, you know, it's memorable to us because it was reinforced every time we watched it and we watched it pretty consistently back in the day. Yeah, exactly. And so that's only going to serve to reinforce the catchiness of the theme song. So perhaps if you are coming to uh the Inspector Gadget theme nowadays, or at least the old theme from the long ago, and you're listening to it now, you're like, eh, it's okay. It doesn't really do it for me. But again, it's one of those things, just repetition time and time again. You hear it, and it's, of course, going to stick in your brain as it did for us. So... Actually, really, you know, I mean, as a show, really simple premise, bumbling cop, uh, that is Inspector Gadget, voiced by Don Adams. And interesting that you said this uh, kind of felt like, you know, an animated version of Get Smart because Don Adams was the main character on Get Smart for many, many years. Yes, Maxwell Smart. Yes, he was Maxwell Smart through, I think, the first couple incarnations of uh, Get Smart. Basically... He may have even had a cameo in the uh, more recent, like, Steve Carell version, too, I think. Yeah, I think so. That sounds about right. But, yeah, I mean, every episode sort of had, like, a very similar um, setup. And a lot of the episodes, like, really had, like, a similar way that they all played out. I mean, Brain, their dog, was the one that actually did all the hard work and was kind of like the person constantly protecting Inspector Gadget because Inspector Gadget was a bumbling fool. And then Penny, um, Inspector Gadget's niece, she was the one, you know, actually doing all of the real detective work and really helping Brain out, you know, doing things. And she was doing, like, she was the actual, you know, 
person with the brains, as it were, you know, even though brain was the dog, but Penny was the one who did all the actual work. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah. So that's how every episode would sort of play out. But then chief Quimby at the start of every episode would always, you know, give him, give, um, professor, or professor gadget. So inspector gadget, his, um, assignment. And it was always kind of like mission impossible where, you know, inspector gadget would read the thing. And it was like, it would always be like this message will self-destruct. And then he would throw it in some garbage can or something. Cause he would never realize that Chief Quimby was kind of right there giving him his message. And, you know, Chief Quimby would always be kind of out of the way and he would throw the thing into a garbage can or wherever Chief Quimby would be. And then the message would explode and Chief Quimby would be grievously injured. Ha ha ha. That's the joke that happens every episode. And then, yeah, then there was like the bad guy, Dr. Claw, who with his cat, he's, you only ever see his, his, um, you know, his, his pet, which was Mad Cat, you know, uh, and yeah, he had that classic Dr. Claw voice, the Frank Welker, I believe it was Frank Welker did the voice. Um, yeah. Or at the very least, Anyways, Frank, yeah, Wel- so- Frank Welker did the voice of Mad Cat. Yeah, that, that could have been. I think it was actually, I think he actually was Dr. Claw as well, but, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Claw, Mad Cat, and Brain were all voiced by Frank Welker. Okay, good. Um, but yeah. Um, so an entertaining, you know, series and cartoon from, from that time, does it hold up to, you know, if you were to go back and watch it now? No, probably not. Also, an interesting thing I never thought about before, just looking at the Wikipedia page, the theme music was directly inspired by Edvard Grieg's movement in the Hall of the Mountain King, which uh, I never thought about before, but 100% is. It's like a jazzy, like 80s, you know, kind of almost like 80s style hip hop version of in the Hall of the Mountain King. Um, listen to the both songs. You'll see what they mean. Um, you'll probably hear it, but uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, and just to point out, as I mentioned, Cree Summer, uh, the voice of Penny. She was only the voice of Penny, I believe, for the first season. But even so, according if her IMDb page is to be believed, that was the uh, first gig that Cree Summer landed in her illustrious and very long-running voice acting career. Yeah. And Cree Summer has a lot of credits to her name. Oh, yeah. She... She's one of those people like, you know, Tara Strong or, um, people, people of that regard where she's got like, yeah, chances are, well, I mean, like, I don't know these days, but if you are of our age, in and around our age, give or take five, ten years growing up, you probably are familiar with a Cree Summer role, be it, you know, um, like Susie Carmichael and Rugrats or, um, like Elmira, a, a lot of different, yeah. Elmira, that's another, you know, famous one. And yeah, lots of other ones, but yeah, those are the ones that kind of jump out to me, but yeah. So inspector gadget re- running for actually only, uh, not that long. I mean, it felt like longer when you're a kid, but you aren't piecing together that there's only a finite amount of episodes because inspector gadget was just always on. There was always some kind of channel airing Inspector Gadget in our area pretty much every day, and then, like, maybe every other weekend and whatnot. So ultimately running just for, yeah. like, 
two, two and a half years, only two seasons. Uh, it's available now. There's been many different incarnations of Inspector Gadget. I think there's a, a new fully CG animated series, whether or not it has the same charm or whatnot. I don't know. It's not the one I've watched, you know, it's not the one I watched growing up. So, uh, it's also not the one we're talking about because it didn't end, you know, 35 years ago. So Inspector Gadget, uh, with a fairly, fairly illustrious voice cast as well. I mean, Don Adams, Cree Summer, but also Maurice LaMarche and also Frank Welker in there as well. So those are some good cornerstone pillar names of the voice acting community and have been for decades. So maybe that draws you to check out Inspector Gadget if it's something that you never experienced in your time, maybe do so. Uh, I'm sure you can find clips on YouTube or various other platforms to check it out. Give it a watch and let us know your thoughts on Inspector Gadget and also Duke Nukem 3D. Does it still hold up? Um, Do you want to see a refresh of the Duke Nukem character or perhaps uh, something new involving the Duke Nukem character? You can send us your thoughts in a couple different ways. You can email us in the long form info at the arcade show.com or you can hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at the arcade show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And if you haven't done so already, although I trust a lot of you have, you're all good people out there. We only attract good people. And if you're not good people, we're going to kindly ask you to see yourself to the door. But assuming only good people are left, and if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this program and get it delivered to your digital doorstep through whatever podcatcher you use. But we are on iTunes. We are on Google Play Podcasts. Strike links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. And uh, I dare say that about wraps us up nicely for this edition of the program. And we thank you so much for joining us once again and hope you can uh, join us again next time. So until then, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 